18 months would be already extremely fast. All right. So it's not likely that we will ha have a vaccine for this season. If this problem persists, obviously we will need a vaccine in the long run. What does it take to get a more in-depth look into the week's top local news story? The Debrief brings you inside for a one-on-one -on -one conversation with our reporters, right here, right now. The Debrief. Brought to you by Hackensack Meridian Health. Visit our partner site, nbcnewyork.com slash healthu, to help you on your health journey. Hackensack Meridian Health, life years ahead. One of the most aggressive efforts to find a vaccine for the coronavirus is being headquartered right here in New York City, specifically Columbia University. So we wanted to take an opportunity and invite the person who's actually running that effort to kind of separate fact from fiction and give us a gut check now as we are in the throes of what is becoming a global issue. So we welcome Dr. David Ho, who is the founding scientific director of the Aaron Diamond AIDS Research Center and professor of medicine at Columbia. I had to read that long title because it's important. Dr. Ho, thank you for being here with us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Let, let me uh, start broadly. We heard this week from the Trump administration and the president and Dr. Uh, Anthony Fauci, who mm -hmm. is the National Institute of Allergy and uh, Infectious Diseases. We want to be realistic about a vaccine, so let's talk broadly. Even Dr. Fauci was trying to say, look, even if we come up with something, there's an initial trial and then there are further trials. Mm -hmm. Take us through a realistic time frame, first of all. Well, normally, uh, if you were developing a novel vaccine, it's a five to 10 year endeavor. But obviously, under uh, urgent crisis, right. uh, the timeline is going to be contracted. I think it's possible to construct a vaccine in the laboratory in a course of a couple of months. Okay. So it's, it's that fast. But once you have that vaccine, you have to test it in animals to make sure that's safe. And then you have to put it into manufacturing in conditions that are suitable for application to humans. And that's not a trivial exercise mm -hmm. and generally requires months and months. But I think on a fast track, it probably could be done over a three to four month period. And when that product comes out, you still have to test it in animals for safety and, and what we call immunogenicity. That is, is it eliciting the proper immune responses? And that too takes some time. So that by the time you get to first test in humans, it's many months later. All right. We had heard him make reference to 45 people, this number. Did you hear him say that in, in, in April? I'm just trying to, for our listeners uh, and viewers, when they hear these numbers and headlines, they might default to something. Just clarify that for us. Well, so it, it's, it's going to take six months or more to get to that point. And then you might be ready to put it into first in human clinical trial, and that 45 person study is what he was referring to. It goes into those individuals and then you have to uh, follow them for a certain number of months just to make sure the product is safe. And so you're approaching one year mark already and then he said we could then go from 45 to a much larger number that might be called a phase two study uh, that might involve a few hundred people and it's going to take another many months. Okay. And by the time you're ready to see if vaccine indeed protects individuals from catching the virus, 
uh, it's a year or more later. So 18 months would be already extremely fast. All right. So it's not likely that we will ha have a vaccine for this season. If this problem persists, obviously, we will need a vaccine in the long run. All right. So, Doctor, obviously a lot of anxiety. We see it on Wall Street. We see it with uh, all kinds of travel implications. Just talk to me emotionally, for example. How, what concerns you about this, uh, this virus? Where would things stand now? Give us a gut check. Well, what concerns me is the magnitude of this epidemic inside China. It, it's already 10 times bigger than, than SARS, um, and it's still growing, obviously. And where we end up is, is a bit unclear. And SARS went away, but this is now so much bigger. The question is, is it going to go away as the weather warms up, people get out, and the virus doesn't st survive in the environment for as long? And, and what happened in SARS, would, would this epidemic follow the same course? Or would it establish a foothold in the human population? because it's so widespread already that as the weather in the northern hemisphere warms up, it, it obviously cools down in the southern hemisphere and the virus jumps there and then bounces back and forth with seasonal migration, very much like seasonal flu. And so would it follow the course of SARS or the follow the course of seasonal flu? That we don't know. Um, we obviously hope that we could wipe it out and then we wouldn't be plagued by seasonal coronavirus infections. Mm -hmm. uh, but the fear is that would become the norm. And, and obviously, we, we know the, uh, the, the impact of uh, seasonal food. Millions and millions of people get infected by that, and you know, somewhere around 0.1% of them die. While that mortality rate sounds very low, but the denominator is so big, when you apply it, it's, it's a lot of death per year. We hear that reality checker. We had been hearing it. Uh, remember, the flu is potentially much more dangerous. You, you, you think the flu is still more of a concern than the coronavirus? I mean, people want to try to get it in perspective. Well, I think they're, they're both concerns. I, yeah. That's why you know, the health authorities constantly remind us to get the flu shot right. and, and, and you know, maintain good hygiene to, uh, during the flu season. Uh, but this one, uh, the new coronavirus, pales by comparison in terms of the total number of cases. Okay. However, it's new, and it's about 20 times more deadly than flu. And so that's, we need to be concerned. And as the CDC has indicated, we need to be preparing for the worst case scenario, where the outbreak explodes similar to what we're seeing uh, in early January in China. And, and so that's the case you have to prepare for. Obviously, one hopes for a better scenario. Let's talk about your effort at Columbia, $2.1 million grant now for this effort. And you, as I understand it, as Time Magazine wrote it, you're trying to come up with a library of antiviral drugs. Take us through what you and your fellow researchers uh, will be trying to do. Well, on the drug effort, uh, we are focusing in on two proteins of the coronavirus. One is called protease, and the other is called polymerase. The protease is a chemical scissor. It cuts the viral proteins as they're made by the virus, 
from large pieces into smaller pieces. And then these smaller pieces would assemble into a virus particle. If you somehow you have a way of gumming up the chemical scissor, the virus cannot cut its proteins and hence cannot make infectious progeny. And so, and, and this is an area of research that's well treaded uh, by scientists working to develop HIV drugs and hepatitis C drugs. Let me point that out, that you have been a leading researcher in that effort with the antiviral drugs uh, for HIV and hepatitis. So just go on how that informs your effort here. Well, so, so there's all that experience, that expertise, which we now could bring to bear on the new coronavirus. Uh, this virus has two proteases, so we could go for both targets. And, and we know how to set up these assays from prior experience. And now there are also, a very important point is that there's so many compounds, chemical compounds out there that were designed for the other viral proteases that we could use as the starting basis. They may not fit as perfect drugs for the new virus, but they're a good place to start, and that's where, where our current effort has focused on. So you'll supervise four different tracks, four different teams, as I understand that correctly? Yes, and one team is working on this protease. Okay. And, and that effort is underway, and we're very confident that within uh, a few months' time, we could identify a chemical that has some level of activity. And once we find that, we could keep playing with that chemical, optimize it. So that chemical may fit the, uh, the protease. Uh, but not ideally, and we could optimize it so it fits even better and, and try to turn that into an effective drug. Of course, there are many more steps beyond that before right. you have a drug. But the second target is called the polymerase, and that's, a, that's an enzyme the virus uses to replicate its genetic material, RNA to RNA. And if you block that, of course, the virus cannot copy its genetic material, and hence the replication cycle is interrupted. And this, too, is a uh, well-known target for other uh, viral diseases, mm -hmm. HIV, hepatitis B, hepatitis C. And so there are a lot of starting materials uh, from which we could work. And that's also what we're doing. And two other teams are focusing on that, one on the, on the polymerase side, the mm -hmm. sort of the biology side, and the other from the chemistry side. All these investigators are based at Columbia. So that covers three of the four projects. The, th the remaining project is something that uh, is more related to vaccine, except earlier we talked about vaccine. It's, to, it's what we call va active immunization, yeah. like what we do for flu shot. Right. You tickle the immune system to recognize the virus and react to it when the real thing comes. But the, the effort that I'm speaking about is called passive immunization. Instead of asking one's immune system to make the antibody, we could make the antibody outside the body okay. and then give it as an injection. And that antibody could be designed so that it's extremely powerful mm -hmm. and extremely broad against coronaviruses. And so we're in the midst of doing that as well. So these are the projects that Jack Moss Foundation has agreed to kickstart.
with the initial funding. Jack Ma, the co-founder of Alibaba, and obviously business interests in China. Not to be cynical about it, but obviously he has many reasons to kind of help and move this along. Mm -hmm. uh, clarify for us, Dr. O, you know, sometimes people say someone is suffering with the coronavirus. We're really talking about a strain of a coronavirus. And you've pointed out that we've seen other coronaviruses before, and perhaps had we responded more aggressively then, we might have been further along. Can you explain that? Sure. There, now, as of today, there's seven different coronaviruses that infect humans, four of which only cause common cold. You know, uh, sort of an annoyance. And in the past, no one paid much attention to them because in, in a couple of days, th the problems go away and the infected person recovers. But uh, 18, 17, 18 years ago, a new coronavirus emerged from animals, uh, infected uh, population in China and Hong Kong and much of Asia. And that's what we call SARS, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. And that was due to a new coronavirus. Uh, and it infected about 8,000 people worldwide, killing about 10% of them. And, but that epidemic was brought under control and essentially when it went away. Then about eight, nine years ago, another similar virus, which we now call MERS for Middle East Respiratory Syndrome Virus, emerged uh, probably from animals as well, uh, camels maybe. And, and it, it was not as an extensive an ep epidemic, but it was more deadly. It killed about a quarter to a third of the infected individuals. That too went away. And now, uh, over the past few months, we have this uh, new coronavirus, which goes by various names, uh, 2019 mm -hmm. novel coronavirus or COVID-19. And its origins? Its origins, are, we, we don't know with certainty, but viruses like it exist in bats, for example, and in pangolin, which is an anteater-like uh, animal. So. The speculation is that uh, this is another cross-species transmission from some animal to human uh, through directly or indirectly through an intermediary. That's not known. All right. Dr. Ho, is it conceivable? I don't want to get too speculative, but is it conceivable? We've talked about how well so far in New York City, no confirmed cases, other metropolises, we're starting to see some. But is it conceivable that there are just some cases out there that just haven't been diagnosed as of yet or the people are just not sick? Yes, that's what's basically CDC is saying that uh, it's inevitable we're going to have those cases and have human-to-human -human transmission occurring in the United States. And, you know, a case in point is what we just learned from yesterday in California, right? right? So there's a woman in Northern California who apparently has no known contact and she's infected. And now she's exposed uh, a number of people to the infectious agent potentially, and those people are being isolated or quarantined. So whether that would result in a little cluster, we don't know. Uh, but it, that case tells us it's happening already in this country, and there may be other cases that are not picked up. I mean, it's, it's nearly impossible to seal the whole country. Right. right? Best thing for people to do? I, I think it's obviously not overreact, not panic. Uh, we still have the situation under pretty good control here. 
Uh, but be on the lookout. Obviously, you know, in terms of the health authorities or certain authorities uh, that run organizations, schools, they need to be prepared to have a, a plan in, uh, in hand uh, to deal with this should it uh, burst out. But for individuals, I think, uh, you know, try to be informed and, and try to maintain hygiene. And I think good hygiene. I, I, I think, you know, wearing the mask might be an overreaction, but keeping your hands clean, frequent hand washing, sanitizers, those type of things uh, are very useful. The mask is key. Uh, I just want you to clarify that because a lot of people have different interpretations or varying. If you're known to be sick, I guess, but just say the mask's effective, no, yes? I think the masks, the masks are very important for containing the virus for a sick individual so that they don't sp spray it around too much. For a physician or, or a nurse or a healthcare worker who's in close contact with an uh, infected person, they are very, very useful. Uh, for going on the street, subway, subway, right, wearing a mask, uh, I think generally that's not going to be very helpful. The major mode of transmission is still touching some surface that has been previously contaminated by the infected person and then bringing your hand to your mucosal surfaces, mouth, nose, eyes, for example. Uh, that's, that's why hand hygiene is, is much more critical. Dr. David Ho from uh, the, the founding scientific director of the Aaron Diamond AIDS Research Center and professor of medicine at Columbia. I will read that title in full every time. We wish you and your colleagues Godspeed in this work that you must uh, undertake now and are already undertaking. Yes, thank you very much. We're uh, working day and night to address this. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. And we thank you for joining us on YouTube or wherever you listen to your podcast. I'm David Usher, your host. We want to thank Jesse Edwards and Ben Berkowitz, our producers from the NBC Digital team, as we come to you from our very busy newsroom. Some important information today. We'll check you next time on The Debrief.